let's start here in the book of John. <clears throat> and um, before we read the text we're going to look at this morning, I want to take uh, a, just a little bit of time and, and, and just lay a little bit of foundation work for the book. And we want to start, and, and whenever we, we start into a book, really when we're reading a passage, we want to be aware of the surroundings, what's going on. We want to ask, who's, who's the writer of this book? Uh, when was it written? Uh, to who it was written originally? It's all written to all of us, but who was the original audience? And then what was the purpose behind the letter as the Holy Spirit moved upon holy men and they penned his word? Obviously, we open up this book and it says the gospel of John though there is nowhere in the book where the writer identifies himself as John but instead identifies himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved and we'll talk uh, about how we get to the author being John or pretty much the universal thought that the author of the book is John of Peter James and John of that's not a rock group of of the Lord's inner circle you know he had the 12 uh, he had the 70 he had the 12 and then he had those three Peter James and John uh, who were with him often and let's talk a little bit just to, to to you know just talk about the writer a little about about his conversion how God worked in his life and then we'll look at the verses where we get the internal internal evidence that John's the writer and then we'll briefly touch on the external evidence that he's the writer and Luke chapter 5 we see where John left everything to follow Jesus. And we see Jesus was teaching there at uh, the Sea of Galilee, and a massive multitude of people gathered together. Um, Jesus got into Peter's boat, and no doubt that helped with the acoustics. Got there on the boat, helped with the acoustics, also helped just with crowd control and so forth. And uh, he preached to them, he ministered to them uh, from the word of God, and at the end of that teaching, he told Simon Peter to launch out and to cast his nets. And Peter says, Lord, we've fished all night and we haven't caught anything. And he says, we'll just do it. And so Peter obeyed. They went and they cast out the nets. And there was so much fish, they had to call others to come get the fish in the boat. And when the fish got in the boat, the boat almost sank. So that was quite a haul of fish. And at this point, when the boat began to sink in Luke 5, 8, it says, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And through the teaching of God's word and then through the miracle of God's hand, Simon Peter recognized his sin and he recognized Jesus' lordship. Depart from me, I am a sinful man. James and John were there as well. And in verse 10 it says, and so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. And so the Lord told them, from now on, you're catching fish, but you're going to become fishers of men, the souls of men. So when they had brought their boats to the land, they forsook all and followed him. Speaking of Peter, James, and John, and that was his conversion, hearing the word of God, seeing a miracle at the hand of God, recognizing their sin leaving all to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, as followers of Christ today, the Lord has called us to forsake all and follow him. Now in that, he gives us good gifts. And that's not a charge to say, I gotta leave my job and follow, unless he says, leave your job and follow. And he'll provide for you in a 
another context how he desires to. What it is is a call to put the Lord first, to say Jesus is first in my life. I want to honor God. I follow him first and foremost, and then he's going to direct my steps to where he wants me and what he has for me, and absolutely how he wants to minister to me and through me. And it's wonderful in John's life as he forsook all to follow the Lord. The Lord did a phenomenal work in his life. Because as we begin to look at his life, we see that James and John, his brother, they had a nickname. In Mark 3, 17, it says, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name uh, Boringerus, that is, sons of thunder. These guys' nickname were sons of thunder. And that indicated that they were thunderous men. These were salty fishermen. These were guys that were used to throwing down. They were used to thumping people and so forth. A lot of times people think about the disciples and, and you know what, they, they get a, a wrong conception of these guys. Uh, again, these were rough, rugged individuals. They were really rejects from the Pharisees whom the Lord found as he went upon the podunk countryside of Galilee and the Lord grabbed hold of their hearts and they had a call on them to come follow the Lord. And beautifully, when they forsook all to follow him, uh, when, when, he, when he told them, you know, called them uh, to follow him, he knew what they were and he received them as they were. But as he received them as they were, he began to do a work in them, not only spiritually uh, in the sense of, salvation and calling on his name but spiritually and practically in their lives and shaping them and molding them and making them and as followers of God the Lord's doing that in our lives as well he says in his word he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it and again the the act of salvation is completed on the cross of Calvary the work that he's doing in our lives day in and day out listen he hasn't finished yet he's still working on you he's still working in you he wants to work through you and so as he is patient with you we need to rejoice in that i'm rejoicing that he is patient and long-suffering with me and he was patient with john this son of thunder we see in uh, uh in in the ministry of the lord in luke 9 the lord is heading to jerusalem um he is uh going to jerusalem to again uh minister and they go by the way of the Samaritans, and the Samaritans and the Jews were very much at odds with one another. The Samaritans there did not receive the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't want to receive at this point. Later on, they would. They did not want to receive the gospel. They didn't want anything to do with it. And it says in Luke nine fifty four, when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? These are sons of thunder. Probably before Christ, they would have said, Lord, do you want us to go beat them up? But they're seeing signs of wonders and God's performing signs and wonders through them. And they're like, hey, let's take this to a whole new level. Lord, can we call down fire like Elijah and just zap them right now? By the way, that wasn't Elijah's heart when that happened in Scripture. Verse 55 it says, but Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, do you not know what manner of spirit you are? For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but save them. And I love this. It doesn't say then Jesus said, you know what? You guys get out of here. I don't ever want to see you again. But it says they went on to the, another village. And aren't you glad in our lives in the process of God shaping us and molding us and making us and continuing that work that he began 
when he rebukes us, he continues to walk with us. He continues to love us. He continues to be there for us. Listen, receive that this morning and rejoice in that. The Lord's faithfulness to us. He was faithful to John. We see later on at the Lord's Supper in John 21, 20. It says, then Peter turning around saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following. Actually, this is after, uh, well, excuse me, John 20, 21. Then Peter turning around saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following who had leaned on his breast at the supper. He had leaned at the supper. This is after the supper. Peter sees this. And notice, this is John, and we'll see the context of this is John. He sees now John leaning on the Lord. Listen, sons of thunders don't do that. Men, men that are salty, men that are hardened and so forth. Uh, they have a hard time, you know, at, uh, at times even shaking someone's hand. You know, a hard time giving a hug, hard time saying I love you, hard time even saying, uh, hearing someone tell them I love you. That's where John was, yet God had done a phenomenal work in his life. And we see him now at the Lord's Supper. He was leaning on the Lord's breast, not in a, in, a, in a carnal sense at all, but in a sense of you are my Lord, I love you, and, and I, I understand you want to embrace me, and I'm not ashamed, I'm gonna receive that. And if you go read John's epistles, and we'll see in this gospel that John later on became known as the disciple of love, from a son of thunder to the disciple of love. And I think this is a wonderful message for our world today because we are living in a world that greatly lacks empathy and it greatly lacks natural affection in the sense of being able to love others. We're living in a culture that, that is, has become kind of a, 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 you know, a petri dish for sociopaths and individuals that, that just lack in the ability to be able to love. And listen, I, I, uh, I, I can identify with that. I can identify growing up as a son of thunder. Can anyone else identify that in this room? A, a son of thunder being taught to fight, being taught to harden your heart, being taught to you know, kick and so forth and trample. And uh, I praise God. I praise God for his faithfulness to us in all of our sin, no matter what it is, if you can identify with this or whatever it is, his patience with us and so forth. And this is a wonderful message for our world today because, again, you see this just, just growing epidemic of this in the world around us where, where people can't love. They don't know how to love. And, boy, I feel so much for the generation coming up. They say that the, the, the average age that kids get exposed to pornography now is about eight or nine years old. That does something to your ability to be able to, to love, to be able to function. It's, it's abnormal. And there, we're, there, is a, there is a generation of sociopaths being raised. And yet the answer for them is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, be praying for our youth. Be praying for those around you, those people around you that don't even be able to seem like they can function and so forth. Do you know anyone like that in your life? You're like, well, that's me. I just look in the mirror, right? But all things are possible in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to know that our Lord didn't come just to die on the cross to save us. He died on the cross to do a work in our lives to begin to change us even here on earth. That's who our God is. And he did that in John. Now you skip down a few more verses in John 21, and in verse 24 it says, this is the disciple who testifies of these things. And if you read it in the context, it's the disciple who would lean on the, 
breast of the Lord at the Lord's Supper, that's the disciple who testifies of these things in the book of John. It says, and who wrote these things. And we know that this testimony is true. And then verse 25 is another internal evidence of who the writer is. It says, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that were would be written amen and that's just a phenomenal testimony that all the books in the world couldn't contain all that he did now again the disciple whom the lord loved that phrase is used five times in this book in that again we got to go back and practically look at this though those whom the lord spent the most time with he had the 70, he had the 12, and then he had the three. And it's pretty much universally agreed. Again, that three were, had a special place in the Lord's life. It doesn't mean that the Lord has favorites. It doesn't mean, oh, I'm not on that inner circle. The Lord doesn't have favorites, but here on earth, listen, there were some that he was closer with. There were some that he invested more in practically. There were some that from man's perspective, they would say he loves them more and that he spends more time with them. And that was Peter, James, and John, the three we saw at that conversion there at the Sea of Galilee. Well, again, in that, we know that Peter's not the writer because Peter's talking about one of the other two whom the Lord loved. We know that the book was written after 70 AD. We know that it was the last uh, gospel that was written. And we know that James was one of the first martyrs in the church. He was long gone by the time this was written. And so it's from there it's from the epistles that we do know John wrote that center around the love of God. First John is all about the love of God and us loving God and loving one another. We see again from the eternal evidence, he is one of those three whom the Lord loved. It couldn't be Peter. It couldn't be James. It must be John. That's the internal evidence. And then the external evidence of who the writer is, is if you go back and you read the writings of the early church fathers, starting from the end of the first century, uh, into the second and third, one after one after another, they all give credit to John as being uh, the author of the book. And there's connections between John and those that he mentored and to these men. It's very, very close, just as, you know, what a grandfather to a, a father to a son. And so externally, uh, time and time again, yes, John wrote that gospel. It's John's gospel. Already touched on the time period after 70 AD, after uh, the fall of Jerusalem, uh, most believe that John was probably in his mid-80s to early 90s. So listen, the Lord's not done with you until you take your last breath. Um, they believe that he was pastoring the church of Ephesus, most likely at the time. Now, the next thing we want to ask is, who is the audience? And again, we know that all of God's word is written for all of mankind. It's written for whoever will call on the name of the, the, the Lord. Yet each book does have an original specific audience and we want to know that because that will help us study the book it will help us to study the book in context it's just as if someone uh, you know wrote a letter with universal truth but they wrote it to a specific person that would help us understand what's being said by the writer knowing who they were specifically writing to even if it's a letter for everybody to read and that's the case with the word of God as well who was this originally written to we want to always ask that question um they say that matthew was written to the jews 
because Matthew put the emphasis on Jesus' fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. They say Mark, the Gospel of Mark, was written to the Romans. And it has that fast-paced nature to it to get their attention to show that Jesus didn't just come for the Jews but for the Gentiles. They say Luke was written primarily or initially for the Greeks to show Jesus was the Son of Man. And John, his gospel was written to the Jews and the Gentiles to show Jesus is the Son of God. So in that, we move to the purpose of the letter. And indeed, the purpose of the letter just is vast and broad and goes beyond even our you know, a, a list that we could put together. But you see reoccurring you know, themes and emphasis in the book. And absolutely, this is a gospel that emphasizes, again, that Jesus is the Son of God. It emphasizes his humanity It emphasizes his deity. In fact, we'll talk about his deity and touch on his humanity this morning. And the first chapter talks about both of those things. And John addresses those things uh, in the gospel here and in his epistles because Jesus' deity and humanity came under attack right from the beginning and they're still under attack to this day. There's so many that attack the deity of Jesus Christ. They do not honor the son as God. And if you do not honor the Son as God, you do not honor the Father as God either. You have to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord, not with a little L, but with a capital L, if you want to be born again and saved. Also, you got to recognize Jesus' physical death and resurrection. Because early on, there were many people that say, well, Jesus didn't physically die. He didn't physically resurrect. He was a ghost. And that was done out of a form of Gnosticism to try to get individuals you know, in a place of believing, well, the Lord died for my spirit, but in my flesh, I can do whatever I want to do. Um, Listen, absolutely, Jesus came physically. He had to come physically. He had to die physically. He had to resurrect physically because a ghost could not atone for your sins. A literal man needed to die for our literal sin, literally be buried and literally be resurrected from the grave. And when individuals teach that he didn't come in the flesh, the Bible says it's a spirit of antichrist. It's another Christ. So there's a purpose of that in the book. Also, uh, the gospel shows who Jesus was and who he is. This gospel is loaded with titles of who Jesus is. He's called the Lamb of God. He's called the ladder from earth to heaven or heaven to earth. He's called the light of the world, the bread of life, the way, the truth, the life, the great I am, and so much more. And chapter after chapter, we're going to see who Jesus is, his titles, and so forth. And those aren't just titles. They're not, just, they're not nicknames. They convey who our Lord is. It emphasizes the meanings of events more than just events itself. And mainly, listen, this gospel was written to show us as we see who Jesus is, we see who the Father is. You want to know who the Father is? You look to Jesus. In fact, that's part of our text this morning. The title of the message this morning is Jesus the Logos, Jesus the Word. And we're going to talk about what that means, that when you see Jesus, you see the Father. And so let's get into our actual text here with a little bit of foundation laid. Let's read verses 1 through 5 and jump into this. This is so meaty. It is so rich. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, 
And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, what we want to start with right here is asking the question, in the beginning of what? I remember went to a Bible study early on, uh, you know, as a young man when I came back to the Lord, and the guy was trying to be really in-depth and so forth, and he spent like 45 minutes, you know, what is the beginning? What could the beginning be? And finally, like about 45 minutes, his wife yells out, get on with it! And I'm thinking, she's, she's saying what we're all thinking here. This is a real easy, actually, this, this is a, there's real easy answers to this. In the beginning of what? I think the first question that most people would ask you know, when it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, is this talking about the beginning of God? And they'd ask, does God have a beginning? And this is a mind blower right here. God has no beginning, and God has no ending. God dwells outside of time and space. Have you ever just sat back and thought about that? I mean, just sat back and contemplated that. He has no beginning. Yeah, and you start going back in history. You know, we know time and space. He exists out time, outside of time and space. How could he have no beginning? How could he have no ending? How, you know, we know our beginning. We're headed towards our ending in this dispensation, you know, heading to glory and into everlasting life with the Lord Jesus Christ. But no beginning. I mean, that is just, it, it, we, we cannot wrap our heads around that. But he has no beginning, he has no ending. His word testifies of this. Psalm 92, it says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God has always been. Hebrews 13, 8, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's saying the same thing. He's the same today as he was yesterday. He'll be the same tomorrow as he is today. And there's no beginning in that. It doesn't say he's the same from his beginning to today to forever. But yesterday, today, and forever. He is the same forever and ever and ever. He is eternal. And then 1 Timothy 1.17, it says, Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God alone who is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Again, the king eternal, immortal, invisible, forever and ever. No beginning, no end. So the beginning that's being talked about here is the beginning of creation. In fact, you open the front of your Bible. If you go to the front of the book, you don't need to go there right now, but if you go to the front of the book, how's it start? In the beginning. In the beginning, and who was there at the beginning? In the beginning, God. So in the beginning, God's there, and then it says God created the heaven and the earth. So God was there at the beginning. God has always been and in the beginning of all of this, he created and he started with the heavens and he started with the earth. So in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word was God. So this is telling us what was there at the beginning and before the beginning. And the first thing that we read here was the word was there. The word in the context of the first chapter with absolutely... Uh, Again, they're, 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 it's just, with absolute clarity, is the Lord Jesus Christ. You skip down to John 1.14, and we'll get to this, Lord willing, in a few weeks, but it says, and the word, and word here in the Greek is logos, which we'll get into in a second, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and mercy. He is the Father's only begotten Son. 
he became flesh. He dwelt among us. Matthew and Luke and their accounts, they give, you know what, the, the account of the Holy Spirit coming upon the virgin. Matthew talks about the fulfillment of prophecy. It shows how he came into the world. John just refers to it. Again, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten the Father, full of grace and truth. And amen, he is full of grace and truth. So when it says here, in the beginning was the word, absolutely the context of the book, the context of the New Testament, the context of the Bible is the word is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, this word in the Greek means logos. And there's a lot of Greek words that there's a challenge to put them into the English. The word logos in the Greek, it means the total message of God. So in the beginning was the total message of God. The word logos means heart and mind. So in the beginning was the heart and mind of God. Logos means the divine expression of God. It would also mean the total communication of God to man. You think about logos, you think about words, and words are composed with letters. The Greek, you know, the Greek starts with alpha and it ends with omega. And with Alpha and Omega and all the letters in between, that's how, again, they would express uh, communication and taking those letters. Jesus said of himself in Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. So again, I've always been. I was, I am, I am to come. Again, Christ again proclaiming uh, that he is the eternal almighty God. And he says, I'm the alpha, I am the omega, I am the logos. I am the expression of the father. You see, in Jesus, you perfectly see the father. And then in the word of God, you can perfectly see Jesus. And this is one of the major themes of this gospel. When you see the son, you see the father. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 puts it like this. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, he has in these last days spoken to us by his son. And this is where people say, I don't think we're in the last days. Take them back to Hebrews and at the resurrection, we enter into the last days. So in these last days, he's spoken by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world's who being in the brightness of his glory, notice here, in the express image or the express representation of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the writer of Hebrews declares as the Holy Spirit moved upon him that Jesus Christ is the express image or the express representation of the Father that he holds everything together by the word of his power and praise God, he purged our sins when he went to the cross of Calvary. He died for our sins, he rose from the grave and he sat down at the right hand of the Father and there he is this morning making intercession for his saints. John 1, 18, and we'll get into this in a few weeks to come. It says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So again, God the Father, God is spirit. Jesus is God declared in the flesh. Jesus, again, 100% God, 
became 100% man. God is spirit. We cannot see him. And yet Christ took on flesh to declare who God is in the flesh. You want to know who God is? You want to learn about God? Look at the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the words of Jesus. John, or Jesus, built on, builds on this throughout the epistle. But in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And then he says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. Just show us the Father, and we're good. We'll quit asking questions. I don't think he would have kept that, but verse 9, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is the Logos. You see Jesus, you see the Father. You want to know what the Father looks like? You want to know who God is? See the Logos, see Jesus. And see, this is glorious. Because there's so many people who struggle concerning God, especially concerning God the Father. This culture that we're living in that is breeding sociopaths, a lot of it has to do with parenting. And there are no perfect parents. And I know, man, I, I, I know we better cry out for grace and mercy and parenting our kids and not walk with any pride or whatever, anything else. So if there's anything good there, it's by the grace and mercy of God. But in that, there's so many broken homes today. There's so, so much neglect and so forth. There's so many hurts. There, there's so many abuses, whether it's from parents directly or people in authority and so forth. And what it begins to do in so many people is it gets them into a place where they have a difficult time knowing the Father and really receiving the love of the Father. Anyone like that here this morning? They're like, I'm fine with Jesus. I saw what Jesus did, but the Father, can the Father really love me? Yeah, Jesus is my friend, but I, I don't know about the Father. I, I, I don't know. When I think about the Father, when I think about those in authority, I, just, I think of angry people that want to hurt me. You see Jesus, you see the Father. You want to know the Father's heart for you this morning? Look to Jesus. So many people struggle with, does the Father love me? I know Jesus loves me, but does the Father love me? Jesus said, if you see me, you've seen the Father. In Mark 10, Jesus is ministering to the rich young ruler. And he seemed to have everything practically, but spiritually he was bankrupt. Spiritually he believed the hype. Spiritually, again, he was in a place where he walked in a false pride and self-righteousness. Jesus asked him about the commands. He said, I've kept all of them. And then Jesus says, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and follow me. And then you can be my disciple. Because the Lord called them out. You love your money more than anything else. And while the Lord is saying this to him, it says in Mark 10, 21, then Jesus looking at him loved him. He loved him as he looked at him. He loved this man who worshiped money, who worshiped stuff, who worshiped the money and stuff that God had given to him. The Lord even knew at that point he was gonna turn and walk away from the Lord Jesus Christ, disappointed. It says because he had much, he didn't wanna lay it down. Now maybe somewhere along the line this guy repented, but I love the fact that as the Lord's there in Podunk, you know what, Israel, on the backside of some country, and he meets this guy who was way outclassed above them and so forth practically, the Lord didn't look at him with disdain. He didn't say, listen, we're not, we're not cut from the same cloth, so get out of here. The Lord looked at him, and the Lord loved him. When the Lord looks at you, when the Father looks at you, 
he loves you. The Lord knew he'd lay down his life for that man. And Jesus said in John 15, 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for you. In that, we see that the Father loves you. Receive that this morning. People also wrestle with, I know Jesus loves me but does, or cares about me. Does the Father care about me? And again, you look at Jesus, you see the Father. Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the multitudes, Jesus was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And when the Father looks at you, he has compassion upon you. He loves you. In fact, he loves us so much that he sent his only son to make a way of salvation for us, for you. Receive the love of the Father this morning. Others wrestle with, you know what, will he really save me? Will he really forgive me? Again, I can look at Jesus. I can see how Jesus was. I can see how Jesus operated. I can see how Jesus embraced the lepers, how he, you know what, worked through the crowd to find blind Bartimaeus as he cried out. I see how he left the crowds there on one side of, of, of the, the Sea of Galilee and went to the other and found two demonics that were locked up, that were chained up, that cut themselves to deliver them. I see Jesus. I see again that he'll save me. He forgives me. He loves me. He cares about me. But the Father, I have a hard time with that because of what's happened to me in my life. But again, you see the Son, you see the Father. And I go back to it so often, that thief on the cross, as he hung there and acknowledged his sins and saw Christ was without sin, and he cried out on Luke 23, 42, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, surely I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. And as we see the heart of Christ there, we see the heart of the Father. He loves you. He cares about you. He saved you. He has washed you. As you've called, if you've called on the name of Christ, the Father loves you. He wants to minister to you. He wants to go before you. And so let him come and minister to you in that way and even begin to heal perhaps wounds and things that have happened to you in the course of your life that has caused you to step back and say, authority, I gotta resist that. Yield to the authority of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Can we say amen to that? So it says, the word or the logos was with God. And then it says, the word or the logos was God. Notice here, notice, look, look real closely. It doesn't say the word was a God. And I'll tell you, the enemy of our soul wants everyone to say, yeah, Jesus, he was a God. No, Jesus is God. The Jehovah Witness, they have their own translation of the Bible. They won't tell us who translated it. We got these, you know what, people that translated. Well, who are they? What are their qualifications? Where did they study Greek and so forth? Well, we can't tell you any of that. What you got is a guy that got a King James out and said, well, let's add some words in here. Again, the context destroys where they say the word was with God and they put the word was a God. But this tells us that he was there before of all creation. And they say, well, where did he come from? Well, he was a created being. But wait a minute, wait a minute. Before all things were made, he was already there. Are you saying the angels are eternal? Does that make them God too? No. We'll see in a minute here that Christ created the angels. But this is an attack on the person of Christ, the person of God, to put forth another Christ in an effort to damn souls to hell, and men think that they can be saved through their own self-righteousness, which appeals to the pride of men. The word was with God. The word was God. Now, does this mean there's more than one God? No, the Bible makes it clear there is only one God, 
who's revealed himself in three person, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And again, you go back there to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created. And then in Genesis 1, 26, on the sixth day, it says, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. How would one God say, let us make man in our image? Well, Malachi 2, 10, have we not all one father? Is he not, has not one God created us? And again, we clearly see in the scripture, there's one God who's revealed himself in three persons. He tells us in Matthew 28, 19, there, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, completely separate, yet completely one. Again, it's a mind boggler. He's eternal, he's always been, he will always be. He is one God, and yet he is three persons, completely one, yet completely separated. If anyone stands up and says they can explain that to you, tell them to sit down and say, you don't know what you're talking about. And listen, I take comfort that my God is greater than my comprehension. Now notice verse two, it says, he was in the beginning with God. So verse two reiterates verse one. This is how important this is. Again, the word was with God, the word was God, and then He was in the beginning with God. To make it really, really clear, before creation, the word, the logos, was God and was with God, just in case you missed it. This is a declaration of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's not some created being, but he is God Almighty. This is what the Father says concerning the Son. Hebrews 1.8, this is the Father speaking. Go look at the context. It says, but to the Son, he said, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. Again, there's that eternal concept again. They come, they were created, they'll perish, but you remain. And they will grow old like a garment. Well, that's happening right now with creation. Like a cloak, you will fold them up. And that's going to happen real soon. They will be changed. There'll be a new heaven, a new earth. But you are the same and your years will not fail. The Father says to the Son, you are God. You are everlasting. You will not fail. You're always the same. These things grow old because of sin and the curse that came. You're going to fold them up. You're going to change them, but you are eternal. That's what the Father says about the Son. And this is what the Son says about himself. John 10, 30, I and my father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus was not liked a lot of places where he went. If you're not liked for walking with Jesus, you're in good company. Now, if you're not liked because of just who you are, they probably need to repent of that, but <laughs> they took stones to stone him again. Jesus answered them, many good works I have shown you from my father. Which of those works do you, for the, which of those works do you stone me? And the Jews answered him saying, for good works we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. They got it. They understood it. When he said, I and the Father are one, listen, if you're one with God, in the sense that the Lord is putting it out there, you're God. 
They were the theologians in Jesus Christ's day, and they said, no, we're going to kill you because you're a man making yourself out to be God, even though the scriptures said that God would be with us. It was prophesied. Emmanuel, God with us, right? A virgin will give birth to a child. His name will be Emmanuel, God with us. But they wanted to be God, so they rejected. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Now, again, all things were made through him. God created all things. It didn't just happen. Sorry, there wasn't just some random explosion and then man invented God. All things were made through him. And again, if all things were made through him, then he couldn't have been created because it would say all things were made through him before he was created himself. He's part, again, of God. All things were made through God. God was before creation, yet all things were made through him. The word, the logos, the Lord Jesus Christ, without him nothing was made that was made. Notice again, we go back to Genesis. 1, 1 through 3, and you really see the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out form and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And what do you see here? You see God the Father speaking. I believe you see Jesus Christ in the words of let there be light. And then you see the Holy Spirit hovering over the face of the earth, bringing forth creation. The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. And then later on in verse 26, let us make man in our image. You, you, you see the Trinity right there at the beginning. And then in Colossians 1, 15 through 18, it says this about Jesus. He is the image, or again, the likeness of the invisible God. You want to see who God is? You look to Jesus. The firstborn over all creation. Now, this is where some people say, say he was created. He was the firstborn. This speaks in context of his position. The firstborn means you are the head of all things. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. So this tells us that Jesus created all powers and principalities, that he's the head of all these things, of all the angelic. The Lord is over all of them. He created all of them. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body of the church who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in all things he may have preeminence and again he is the first fruits of the resurrection and christ will be resurrected at the rapture of the church and it will be a glorious day now quickly here as well it says all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made very interesting was made in the greek is perfect tense it means a completed act And this is where you have, I'll say it, theological dimwits in pulpits and places and writing papers saying, well, you know what, these fellows have come up with this theory of evolution and we need to accommodate it by the Bible. They don't know the scriptures. God created the earth in six days. And John 1, 3 says he he created it as a completed act. He created it in a perfect tense. And see, real science 
proves that creation could only work that way. Because if we go out into the parking lot right now and pull the spark plug wires out of your car and take out the gas and remove the battery, guess what? It ain't starting up. An eyeball can't just, you know what, evolve because of all the moving parts for it to work. That thing had to be complete in the beginning. Things had to be created with age. They had to be created to work from the beginning. Otherwise, it would not work from the beginning. He created it. He completed act. He did it in wisdom. He did it in order. He did it with age. He did it in six literal days. In the creation account, it says there was evening and morning, and this was the first day. That's a 24-hour period of time. He rested on the Sabbath. Well, listen, when the Jews celebrated the Sabbath, it was a 24-hour period of time. We see the new heaven and new earth that will come. It doesn't say, and we'll wait around for billions of years, then we'll finally be able to enter in. It doesn't say that, does it? It says the old will be burned and the new will come. And this is massively important because, listen, if it was not made it is a completed act, if it was not made intact, if there were billions of years that led up to the sixth day in the creation of man, then that means things were dying, animals were dying. As some of these guys even say, there were men that they finally evolved to be Adam and Eve. They were all dying and they were dying before man is sin. That puts death on God. And notice what the next verse says. It says, in him was life and life was the light of men and light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Christ is the giver of life. Death came when man sinned. God said, if you eat of that tree, the day you eat of it, you're going to die. Physical death will set in. There will be a separation from me as holy God. You will be sinful man. There will be a chasm between us. And yet men wanting to accommodate God-hating men, because listen, the whole theory of evolution comes out of men wanting to ease the conscience of, of the conviction of the Holy Spirit that they are sinners, they are not righteous, and they are under judgment. And it's utter nonsense. Utter nonsense. It's absurd. It is utter foolishness. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Verse four, in him was life, and life was the light of men. And life is another key theme in this gospel. It's used 36 times. And if you want life, you want to get a life, then get Jesus. You want eternal life, you need to come to Christ. It's found nowhere else. Jesus is the life who breathed light or life into man. He formed man out of dust, and he breathed life. Genesis 2, 7, and the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Again, made without sin, but made with the free will. Formed him. That's some good sculpting skills, is it not? Formed him, breathed light in him. When we sing that song, You Are the Air I Breathe, theologically correct that is saying god's the one that gives me breath in my lungs the danger of that song is some people are saying god's everywhere and everything and i even breathe them in that's not what that's saying let's just get that clear because i like that song but part of me also cringes a bit when we sing it because i think if someone's not theologically sound they can make this to be something that it's not at least i hope that's not the, i hope the intention of the writer was you know from a theologically sound angle you got it's not always the case today Job 33, 4, the spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. 
He gives us life. Acts 17, 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with the hands of men as though he needed anything, since he gives, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. So he gives us breath. He breathed life into us, and without that breath of life, we are still dust in the ground. So he was the life, and the life was the light of men, gave life to man. It doesn't mean men are God, but he is the giver of life. He brought forth light. You ever see, you know, when someone dies, that light goes out, right? You don't see that light there. And notice verse five, we're almost done here, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. This implies something happened, and something indeed happened. Again, God made man in his image and his likeness, formed him out of dust, breathed life into him, formed a wife out of his side, put him in a place of beauty, said, tend to the garden. You can eat of any tree in this garden, but the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you are going to die. We know the account goes, Satan came along, questions God's word. Did God really say if you eat of it, you'll die? Again, God knows the day you eat of it, you'll be like him, you'll be like God. He villainizes God. Again, that attack on the Father right from the beginning, right? They were tempted. Instead of taking the thought captive, it brought forth lust. Lust brought forth sin, and sin brought forth death. And because of that act, spiritual death set in, We are all subjected to physical death, and if you do not come to Jesus Christ, you will be subjected to the second death forever and ever in a place called hell. Christ came again, the logos. He came to shine in the darkness. Fallen man can't comprehend this. 1 Corinthians 2.14, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. But God, again, loving us, God being long-suffering, God caring about us, God being compassionate for us, sent his son to make that way of salvation, and then Christ sent his Holy Spirit to bring that conviction. John 16, 8, when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You see the whole trinity at work. Again, God sending his son, Christ dying on the cross for our sins, being raised from the dead, sending the spirit to convict the world, to convict you, convict me before we came to Christ, to draw us to God so that we could come back to the light, so that we could come back to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll just close again with some scriptures, Lord willing, we'll get into soon, but John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. It was already condemned. But that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who practices evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen and that they have been done in God. And so he sent his son to make that way to life, the spirit of God to convict men, to draw them to that life. 
he's the active party. But what are you going to do with the call of God? I hope and pray we've all called on him here today that he's your Lord and Savior. But if you have not, today is the day of salvation. And absolutely, Jesus Christ loves you. He cares about you. And he wants to wash you and forgive you and be your Lord Savior. You need to humble your heart and ask him to be your Lord, which means I'm turning from what my Lord is. I want Jesus to rule and reign over my life. Let's stand up and we're going to close in prayer. And a last worship song. And then move to the dining room. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we bless you today. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word. Lord, there's so much doctrine here for us this morning. And yet, God, in this doctrine, God, there's so much comfort. There's so much truth. I want to pray, God, that even through what we've looked at this morning, that we will leave here with a greater understanding of your love for us and with a greater love for you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming into this world. We thank you for showing us the Father. We thank you for your death, your resurrection, your great goodness to us, God. Lord, you know the hearts of all men. You know the hearts of everyone here today. Listen, if you haven't called on his name, today's the day of salvation. Maybe you're here and you're like, I I don't know really where I am with these things. I think I know them, but do I know them? I want to know them. I I asked him into my life at one point and then I went and did all these various things and then I've kind of been drawn back. I don't know where I am. Well, listen, you can settle all that this morning. You can settle all that today. I'd like to pray with you this morning to lead you just in a, in, a, in a prayer. And it's not the prayer that saves you. It's faith in Christ that saves you. But sometimes we need that assurance through just, you know, a clear profession of faith. Sometimes it's value, valuable when, when that's in the assembly of, of the church. And this morning, if, if you're saying, I, I want to settle that, I, 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 I want to just know that I know I'm in him. Or today you're saying, I want to call on him. I want to, I want to lead you in a simple prayer. But before I do that, if that's you this morning while we're praying, I, I want to invite you to raise up your hand and say, that's me. I want to ask him into my life. I want him to be my Lord. I want to settle it. Anyone like that today? God bless you back there. God bless you over there. God bless you guys. I'm going to invite you guys that know the Lord just to pray with these this morning. Just, you know what, again, it's, 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 it's not a prayer that saves you. It's faith in Christ. But let's settle this this morning, amen? Just repeat with me. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know you're the Savior. Forgive me of my sin. Be my Lord, my God, my King. I I believe you died on the cross for my sin and you rose from the grave to give me life. I receive that today and I thank you, Lord. Lord, bless all those that have prayed that prayer. Meet them where they are and let us lift our voices to you right now in praise and worship. Let's worship God as we close here.
Blessed be your name in land that is plentiful, where streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your Listen, there's food out there that's been prayed for. Uh, be blessed with that. Bless one another. And uh, again, I pray God just richly and greatly shine his face on you today. God bless you.